Once upon a time, our world was an enchanted one. Once we would have agreed with the words of Caliban from Shakespeare's The Tempest. He said, be not afeard. The isle is full of noises, sounds and sweet airs that give delight and hurt not. Sometimes a thousand twangling instruments will hum about mine ears, and sometimes voices. That, if I then had waked after long sleep, will make me sleep again. But now our world seems colder, more silent, more alone. Max Weber, a German sociologist of over a century ago, observed in Western culture what he called the disenchantment. By the disenchantment, Weber meant the process by which the culture's imagination succumbed to the conclusions of, of the Enlightenment and science, uh, rather than the convictions of scripture, tradition, uh, or folklore. The disenchantment meant that creation, now spoken mainly as the earth or the universe, lost much of its mystique, its grandeur, its enchantment. Instead of being a fount of revelation of God, a place of interaction with the spiritual, the world became a place of the purely natural. Uh, instead of a place that showed God's handiwork, uh, the world became a place that was to be explored and dissected and even exploited for its own sake. So we're all affected, I believe, by this culture, uh, our culture of disenchantment. I think a lot of this resides under the level of conscious thought. We're all affected by this. This is just the air we breathe. We just kind of assume that this is truth because it's so dominant in our culture. Uh, and it's hard to imagine what it would have been like to live before this time of disenchantment. Uh, maybe the best way to get a glimpse is actually to travel to places uh, that are not westernized. Uh, these places, in my experience, you can just kind of sense this, that the spiritual reality of the place. Uh, you get a sense that life is governed as much by the unseen as by the seen. Now you might be wondering, why am I bringing all this up? I bring this up because the view uh, that we have of the world has a tremendous effect on what we believe about God. And what we believe about God will have a huge effect on how we pray. It's possible that our understanding of God and his relationship to creation can make it psychologically impossible for us to pray. Or psychologically impossible for us to believe that God could act in our lives. How are we supposed to pursue the presence of Jesus, like I talked about last week? Um, or how are we supposed to understand that revolutionary concept of being in Christ uh, if we can't imagine um, that working in, in this universe that we live in? So this morning, I hope to restore a bit of the wonder and the beauty and the spirituality of creation, of this place we live in. I like our imagination to be formed not by folklore and not just through science, but through a biblical vision. So that against the tide of our culture, we might know the nearness of our God. The nearness of his glory that it's really like a symphony around us. So I'd like to like throw a grenade at that lie of a cold, alone world. If we take the scriptures seriously, um, the last thing we are is alone. So this is a bit more of a topical sermon than, than I'm used to, uh, but we'll be jumping off from Psalm 19, which is the psalm uh, in, in the lectionary for this week. Um, the path we'll take is one that move, moves from discussing these kind of big picture things about God and creation, and then we'll move to discussing how these things affect the most practical 
like drinking a cup of coffee or watching baseball. So uh, we're going to do something a little bit different for reading the scripture this morning. We're going to read out of the hymnal together uh, on uh, reading 788. We'll read responsively the Psalm, uh, Psalm 19. So once you find it, uh, if you could stand with me to read. All right, thank you. And I'll go ahead and read the um, just the normal print, and uh, you will respond with uh, reading the bold print. The heavens are telling the glory of God. Day to day pours forth speech. There is no speech, there are no words, uh, nor are the words. Their voice is not heard, yet their voice goes out through all the earth. In the heavens, he has sent a tent for the sun. Its rising is from the ends of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. But who can detect their errors? Keep back your servant also from the insolent. Then I shall be blameless. Now all of us together, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Let us pray. O Lord, we live in a time and a place where um, it's hard sometimes to to know that you're near. Uh, Most of the voices out there don't uh, acknowledge you as being very present. So I pray, Spirit, you would come and um, use my words and use our thoughts as as those words are spoken to illumine in us the sense of your presence for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So what's your ontology? Ontology is a fancy word that means the study of being. Not beings, but being, B-E-I-N-G. So what do you believe about that which is? That's all. That's kind of a big question, right? What do you believe about God, creation? What do you believe about yourself? And how do you think about the interrelationships between these things? That's what I'd like to talk about this morning. I guess that your view of God in the universe fits into four categories. I'm sure there's more out there, but these four are the dominant ones. Um, I'd like to give a good summary of these different ontologies because sometimes understanding what's not true will help bring into focus uh, the truth about how things are. Um, I've employed some very sophisticated technology 
to help demonstrate visually what these different ontologies are. Um, so, Dwayne, if we could put those that first slide up. If you reach under your seat, there's some 3D glasses to take out. I'm just kidding. So, first, um, first kind of model of ontology is the atheistic model. It's pretty complicated. Um, Atheists believe that all there is is the natural world. There's just the universe. Uh, basically, in this model, the universe just exploded into existence on its own, and our world and our lives are just a sort of accident, a result from the ongoing trajectory begun in the Big Bang. Out of nothing, somehow, came something. This view gets a lot of press. Um, there's actually not that many people who believe it. I think, like, the worldwide estimate for how many atheists there are is like 2% of, of all people. So that's the first model. All right, next, next slide. Then there's the pantheistic model of the universe. This uh, ontology believes that um, God and the universe are basically the same. God, or the divine as it's often called in this, uh, this way of thinking, can be found in a tree, a flower, or a distant galaxy. God's everywhere, included in you. Um, you're as much God as anything. What's appealing about pantheism uh, is the accessibility of God or the divine. Um, but the pantheistic God or gods are, are really small. Um, these gods are bound to the universe. They don't transcend it. There's nothing beyond the universe. It's just that the universe is charged with the sense of kind of the divine. And this philosophy has been around in one way or the other throughout most of history. And it's actually pretty prevalent, prevalent in our culture, too. Um, a lot of the New Age stuff uh, you see uh, around is, is basically pantheism. I, I have conversations with people sometimes, and they say stuff like... Um, you know, the universe gave me this or that, or, you know, the universe has showed me um, the truth about uh, what to do next. And uh, that's pantheism, believing somehow that just in the universe is kind of this divine presence. All right, next. This is our old pal, deism. Uh, if you remember from, you know, school, deism arose out of the Enlightenment movement of the 18th century. And deists believe that God created the earth and then just left it. You know, they give the analogy of the watchmaker who makes a watch, fine-tunes it, winds it, and leaves it alone. The God of deism is very much separate from creation, and apparently not that interested in it. Um, this God wouldn't bother to intervene in creation. So, uh, again, the deistic God's not very present. I guess he's too high above to be involved in small human matters. Uh, but he's given us reason. That's the big thing in deism. God, God's given us reason to figure out what we need to figure out. So a word about deism. I, I think this thought system is actually the one we're most tempted by. Uh, the deistic God's subtle and sly and takes different forms. Uh, you see this God in, in some Christian theologies even. Uh, in theologies that focus on the escape from the world instead of its redemption. Deism is alive and well when Christianity is, is only about having fire insurance. So when you die, you go to heaven and not the other place. You also see it uh, in, in Christianity when people think about God being in outer space or something. You know, I, I actually, I didn't realize it, but I actually believed that until, like, college, <laughs> that God was somewhere up there. But when you really think about that, that, that kind of thought doesn't work out philosophically. Deism is also alive in some more liberal theologies. They tend to think of miracles as kind of outdated myths. Um, or theologies that think of Jesus as just kind of a, a good moral example and, and not the Son of God. Um, deism is also alive and well when uh, prayer is presented as just kind of a, a form of self-therapy or self-help. 
But theism gets it wrong about God from a biblical perspective because the God of the Bible is very much interested in creation. More than anything, our God is a relational God. He wants to be in intimate relationship with us. The God of Scripture has emotion, is close to creation, and intervenes in it. And not only that, not only does deism get it wrong about God, deism gets it wrong about creation from a biblical perspective. Because deism doesn't acknowledge that creation has fallen. The Bible tells us in Romans 8.21 that creation is in bondage to decay and awaits liberation. Creation is not a fine-tuned watch. In the biblical vision, creation is good but fallen and in need of redemption. All right, now, finally, my, my, my visual representation of the biblical vision of uh, a bean. Pretty high-tech stuff here. Um, so, the biblical vision of God's relationship with creation is one of imminence and transcendence. Um, again, some more fancy words. But uh, the God is imminent means that God is as near and as close as it's possible to be to creation. God's as near and as possible, and as, and as close as possible. As, um, let me say that again. God is, is as near and as immediate as it's possible to be to creation. It's the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Um, God can't get any nearer to creation than he is. In fact, creation is in God. I've tried to kind of show that with the dotted line. Um, as Paul says in Athens in Acts 17, 28, God's not far from any of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Psalm 24 declares, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. And this is how Psalm 19, which we read earlier, can declare that the heavens are telling the glory of God, the skies his handiwork. Because God created these things and their location is in him. I like how medieval uh, theologian, theologians used to put it. They would say um, that we exist in the mind of God. We exist in the mind of God which is kind of mind-boggling if you pause to think about it. So the imminence of God is apparent in Scripture. Uh, you know, there's so many stories of God's interaction with his people, from the call of Abraham, his revelation to Moses in the burning bush, or on Mount Sinai, his presence in the pillar of fire by night uh, among the Israelites, and the, the cloud by day to the Israelites. God's imminence is present in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle, in the temple, or God speaking to his people through the prophets. Scripture is the story of God's relentless pursuit of relationship with his people. God's the main character of the Bible. He's not some far-off deity. Scripture reveals God as El Roy, the God who sees. Our God's a God of interaction, initiation. This isn't a God that comes from some faraway land, and if we happen to be in the right place, or if we happen to say the right words, we might see him. Rather, our God is here with us. Some of the most profound words in all of Scripture are God, God's uh, self-declaration of Moses in the burning bush. I am that I am. We are on holy ground right here and right now. Uh, so along with Scripture, um, the closest of God uh, is also revealed in creation. As Psalm 19 declares what we read. Unlike the pantheist, we don't assume that creation is God. Rather, the wonderful glory of the of creation is like an arrow that points us to God, to its creator. As Paul writes in Romans 1.20, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his 
eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. I mean, if, and when you pause to ponder the majesty of creation, it really is overwhelming. Um, we need to do this from time to time. I mean, I think from the subatomic to the outer reaches of the universe, what diverse beauty there is in creation. It's brimming with goodness. Let me think. I, I'm just going to kind of catalog some of the beautiful things I see in creation. Think sunsets. Think supernovas. Um, juicy peaches. Waterfalls. Toddlers laugh. Deep dish pizza. Or thin crust, if you like that. I mean, we can go on and on about the goodness of creation. We should take time. To, I mean, think Yosemite. good afternoon nap, a gripping football game, roses, romantic love, deep friendships, Mozart's, box, punk rock. I don't know if that's good creation. I like it. But this stuff gives us a glimpse of the goodness of God. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Creation points us to the Creator, His nearness. It's goodness that's brimming over. It's like a feast laid before us, creation. When we enjoy these things, you know, it's actually a mistake to enjoy them in themselves. These things are a means to enjoying our Creator. These things, as Psalm 19 tells us, are declaration, declarations of God's glory. So God is imminent in creation and the story that Scripture tells. Yet it's equally important to remember that God is transcendent. Scripture reveals a God who's very close, as we've discussed, but He's also very much other. We need to be careful not to make God into our own image. Through Isaiah, the Lord tells us, My thoughts are not your thoughts. God transcends our ability to understand Him through creation. Once you think you can fully comprehend God, you've got it wrong. God's bigger than our capacity to imagine. We've... uh, We've got a little goldfish in our house now because of the carnival a couple weeks ago. I don't know if it's still alive. I don't know if, yeah, I don't know if any other fish survived. Ours is doing all right. Um, any fish out there anymore? Yeah, yeah all right. Um, but I, I think of this fish in this little fish bowl, and uh, I imagine Nemo, that's what Evelyn named it. Um, I imagine his perspective and how limited it is from. You know, the capacity that Nemo has to imagine the world. Um, we're probably, you know, not even, you know, we're, we're even worse than Nemo when it comes to understanding the, the vastness of, of the universe, I think. I mean, maybe, maybe people have a pretty good grip on it now, but I, I think we, we, it's, hum, it's, it's the right humility to acknowledge we, we don't know. We can't know everything. And when it comes to God, to, to think that we can kind of pigeonhole God, that, that's the wrong perspective. Can't put God in a box. Um, because God's transcendent, we need God's help to see God. Though creation sings His glory, uh, we're often deaf to its songs. In our entanglement in sin, uh, has us bent and broken and unable to see clearly. So all this leads up to the question of 
how do we live a life of relationship with this God who's so very near to us? How do we live a life of interaction with the God who is imminent, who's here with us, but also transcends our capacity? Well, first we need to clarify that God is everywhere. And though all of us are, in a sense, in God, um, God does allow us our own little realm of free will. So this drawing again, I, you may think that little dot right there is a mistake, but that is purposeful, that little dot right there. That's a representation of our own little world, our own little kingdom, the own little realm of reign that God gives us, where your will is done. And these little realms are often a mess, because we mess up uh, our little worlds pretty quickly without God. But the way we break down the enclosures of our little kingdom is to yield to God's kingdom through trust in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus both reveals God and is the definitive place of access to God. Jesus is the place where the imminent and the transcendent meet. He is God incarnate, God in the flesh, the image of the invisible God in whom we live, move, and have our being. When we surrender self, placing our trust in Jesus, our little world's open to God's. We're allowed to become a part of God's redemption project here and now. When we yield our kingdom to Jesus, as we put our life in His hands, we're inviting God, the Holy Spirit, to come live in us, to transform us, to make us new creation in the midst of the old. And this is the amazing thing. The amazing part um, that, that always gets me is that When God comes to dwell in me, it's all of God coming to dwell in me. Um, It's not like God takes a little piece of himself and kind of spreads it out among the people. It's it's as Paul writes to the Ephesians. The Spirit allows allows us to be filled with all the fullness of God. What a mystery. I'm still trying to wrap my mind around this. I don't think I ever will. All the fullness of God here with us now. But what do we do with all this? As we make our lives in the uh, imminent and transcendent God through Jesus Christ. As I said in the beginning, I want this sermon to be about prayer. I want, us to, want it to help us with the most practical things. I mean, I hope these big picture concepts are starting to spark in you a sense of wonder. A sense of awe about the place we live. Instead of it being a cold, alone world. Uh, I believe when our thinking is renewed by a biblical reality... It can actually be transformational for all areas of our life. It's like Pete's coffee. Um, I'll explain how. So I've been lately. I've been drinking some really cheap coffee. Um, we, you know, it's we buy the coffee that comes in the really big canister. Actually, has a handle built into it. When you buy a coffee that has a handle built into it, that's pretty bad coffee. Um, uh, and there was this deal for Pete's at Target the other day, and I just couldn't pass it up. I love good coffee. It's my favorite. Pete's is my favorite. Um, and I noticed something as I began to brew and drink Pete's coffee. I started to treat everything a little bit differently. I scrubbed out my uh, coffee maker. And um, I, I really cleaned out my thermos that I drink coffee out of. I, I, you know, I was really detailed with it. And I was really careful with my you know, coffee ground to water ratio. I wanted to get that just right. I had Pete's right here with me. Why wouldn't I take extra care with my preparation my drinking habits? The presence of Pete's changed how I lived. I started to arrange my life around the reality that I possessed Pete's coffee. 
that Pete's coffee was available to me. If I have this exceptional coffee with me, I need to respond accordingly. It's a little silly, right? But I noticed it's similar with God. When, when the reality of God's presence really sinks in, it changes everything about how I live. I arrange my life differently. I begin to pray like God is actually listening to my very words and will act on my very words, my request. I not only speak words to God, but I take time to pay attention to what God's saying to me. I'm more attentive to how God might be working around me. I ask God, what words might you have for me to share with this person? Or how might I show your love, oh God, in this situation that's just ugly? My vision changes. My outlook, instead of being a self-centered one, becomes centered in the one in whom we live and move and have our being. My focus shifts to God's glory. I delight in His goodness. I join in His work. I'm becoming part of creation's song to God. I'm also less likely to sin if I'm conscious of how near God is. If you could see Jesus with you all day right by your side, which is actually, you know, we believe that. That's true. How would it change your life? How would it change what you say or don't say? How would it change what you watch on TV or do on your computer? This is always for me a good reminder. Um... My mom's funny. She, um, she may be listening to this sometime down the road on tape or something or online. So, hi, Mom. Um, love you. Um, but she, she lives her life in God's presence. And one of the ways you can tell this is, um, like, if she does something that really bothers her, say she smashes her thumb while she's hammering or, or she cuts it while she's cutting something, and she, you know, happens to... To swear. Immediately after she does that, she'll say, "Sorry, Lord." She lives. God's. She lives in the reality that God's right there, listening, hearing, and she has this relational interaction with Him. Um, hi, Mom. <laughs> um, so, how do we maintain though this presence, uh, this sense of presence of, of God, God's presence? How do we? How do we practice it? How does this work when we're running late for church or um, when we're in a busy board meeting? How do we learn to be conscious of God's presence? Well, it's a journey. And we actually have some great resources in church history. Um, you know, some, some resources of how people have developed the discipline to practice God's presence. And I want to share a few with you this morning. Um, probably the most famous, uh, you know, this figure when it comes to practicing God's presence is, is maybe Brother Lawrence, who um, was a 17th century monk who wrote about uh, his prayer discipline in a book titled The Practice of the Presence of God. Brother Lawrence had the lowly job of washing dishes at a monastery. But he said that he had as rich a communion with God while he was washing dishes as he did during Eucharist. The key for Lawrence, as he writes, was doing whatever he was doing for God as an act of worship, no matter what it was he was doing. This is how he postured himself. He would remind himself that God was near, and then he would invite God into whatever he was doing. He was constantly thinking about God and talking to God inwardly, whether it was walking the monastery grounds, turning a doorknob, writing a letter, eating food, sleeping, or even in worship. Um, Busyness for him was no excuse for, for not praying. He invited prayer into all of his life. His disposition towards God was conversational. And Lawrence, over and over, if you read his book, 
the theme that comes up is joy. And that's right. When you commune with God, there's so much joy. Um, One of my favorite pointers that he gave was not to get down on yourself in this practice because it's a journey. You're not going to get it all at once. You say, if you you realize after a while that you've been failing to practice God's presence, just remind yourself God loves you, doesn't condemn you, and to try again. It's a a process and it's a journey. You don't get there in one day. Uh, I recommend that book and it's it's widely available. We actually might, I think we have some copies in the library. Um, So it's it's a good... It's a good kind of guidebook for practicing God's presence. Uh, Another practice is silence. Silence is the simplest thing and the hardest thing. To just be silent and still and know that God is God. Uh, Silence might be the best way to become aware of God's presence. Uh, When you're silent, you're physically demonstrating what we believe to be true. That God is present and speaking. I'd recommend daily silence. Maybe just start with a minute. Two, maybe just three minutes of being silent before God. Uh, and then maybe once you get that down, I, I'd recommend trying something you know, a little bit longer. Maybe try, try an hour. Try half a day. Try a full day. You don't have to just be sitting in one place that whole time. But just practice silence in a very noisy, loud, busy world. Um, it's amazing how God becomes present to us when we're silent before Him. Uh, you probably have to pair that with silence first cousin, which is solitude. It's hard not to be transformed after a day of silence before God. Um, you can also try corporate silence. Um, that's not some fancy new business you know, model, corporate silence. It's actually, the, what I mean is being silent together in a group. Um, that's a good way to, to practice God's presence. The Quakers, remember them? They, they were known for this. Their spirituality is very much centered on the reality of Jesus' very presence with us. They really believe that Jesus is here. Um, really. They, they, they act on it. They believe that. So they reflect this in their worship gatherings. Uh, they, they would come together, and some still do, they come together in one meeting room, and their worship uh, liturgy would basically be, would be to sit in silence together. And um, they would sit in silence, and they would wait for God to speak. And when someone would seem to hear from God, they would stand and share. That was their strategy. Um, communal silence, in my experience, somehow seems to amplify silence. If that's possible, um, something about being with others in silence is especially powerful. And uh, the the last kind of habit that I recommend to you, recommend myself too, is just practicing God's presence and enjoying creation. Allow creation's wonder and beauty to captivate you and point you toward your Creator God. I sat outside under the stars the other night, and. Um, I couldn't remember the last time I did that. It was wonderful. Just to sit there and, and be caught up in the wonder of a night sky. I know I want to do that more. Our world's an enchanted world. God is near. God's close by. Let the beauty that's all around you point you to beauty's author, our Lord. I'd like to end our time... Um, Fittingly, I think, with the time of silence together. Um, like just to spend maybe a minute together in silence, um, acknowledging that God is here with us. Let's pray.